Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello friends, I'm your host, Chris Thrill. I'm a former Royal Marines Commando. I've adventured, for better and sometimes worse, across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. This is Forces Radio BFBS. The following programme contains adult themes. This is Forces Radio. This is BFBS. BFBS, original Forces programmes. Coming home. Chris Thrall. Things were pretty fraught. I mean, I was a guy that just got kicked out of working for the Hong Kong triads because I was too crazy. And I mean, I was literally crazy. I don't mean my behaviour was wild, although it was. I mean, I was just so mentally unwell. They couldn't deal with it anymore. They had You can say I grew up an angry young man. And I had a, a friend when I grew up. He came around to my house and he said, yeah, I've just, I've just joined the Royal Marines, you know, I've been on this potential recruit course, it was so difficult, they made us do this, they made us do that. And then he said, of course you couldn't do it. And being this angry young man, I, I said, well, yeah, I could. As soon as the break was over, I went straight down to the recruiting office. <laughs> My friend had told me what to say. He said, you need to say, I want to forward an application to join the Royal Marines. <laughs> I don't know why we decided that was the thing that I had to say as opposed to, you know, can I join the Marines, please? But, but the, the sergeant in the recruiting office, he did, didn't say, obviously didn't say anything. And the, the sergeant said, yeah, just uh, can you jump up on that pull-up bar? So as with everything you do for in, in, in the Marines, you think you're going to fail. You're going to give it your best, but you, 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 there's this, always this massive worry that you're not good enough, and that's obviously how you're made to, to feel to get, to get the best out of you. So... I got to like my 29th pull up and he's like, right, get down, get down. I was like, all oh, right, I've obviously failed. And he, and then, and then I later realized like most guys have trouble doing five or six <laughs> oh, oh, as civilians, obviously. And that was it. Of course, all the time I was this angry young man. So I was running the endurance course. You do it in like order, then you're not, obviously don't have equipment and a weapon but I'm running an endurance course and I was starting to fall back from, from the pack and, and uh, this corporal came alongside, come on mate, you can do it, you can do it. And, and I just thought, I'm not going home. That's all I ever thought during all my time there is, I'm not going home, I'm not gonna give my parents who kicked me out, um, my mother kicked me out at 15, father then kicked me out at, at 17 and I was, homeless living in my car. I just wasn't going to give them the satisfaction of knowing that I failed or that. That's how I saw it. 
and I would have died rather than I would have died rather than that happen. I was just going to keep going until I fell down, and and I gave it my best shot. At the end of that three days, there were there were left I think nine of us outside of the the office, and there was a sergeant or a colour sergeant inside, and he called seven people in, and the the two or three of us that were left outside thought, oh God, these are the guys that have passed, and. You know, we're going to get called in a minute and told, well done. We, we reckon we were going to get told, well done, fellas, but, but could you come back in six months? And then the guys came out and they disappeared silently. And we got called in and the guy just said, right, fellas, pat yourselves on the back. You've all just joined the Royal Marines. I'd, I'd gone from having nothing. I couldn't see where that my life was going and I'd always been like that to go from that to suddenly finding yourself a member of one of the world's most elite fighting forces was just immense probably for the first time in my life I was you know I had something substantial to be proud about so that's how I felt well we all arrived on that infamous platform at Linson, and our drill instructor came down. He was a good guy, yeah, he, he was good. We went for an interesting time, our training. It was just after the Falklands, or I was, it was 1988, the Falklands were obviously 82, so it was that period. It was a, a time that was remembered for, for being quite a lot of almost bullying, I guess you could say. The training teams were very hard on the guys back then, and you could get a troop of 55 people leave that railway platform on, on day one and they'd get whittled down to eight or nine guys. You see some things that are not nice. On our first exercise, there was a guy walking around and he had the chin strap undone of his helmet. Anyone who's ever worn a helmet and needed to wear a helmet will tell you, you have the chin strap done up because it's pretty much going to get blown straight off your head if, if you don't have them to demonstrate this point. The corporal made this guy kneel down in front of everyone and then he just repeatedly kicked him in the head. He actually had to do it uh, about four or five times before the helmet did, uh, did actually came off. I'm not sure if he meant to kick it off first time, but, but that was, it was a bit sad. You could see this poor lad was on the verge of tears and, and he was a good lad as well. He, he went on to become a diamond, so it wasn't as if he really deserved it. And, there's better ways to, to make your point. The guy that replaced him was, was fine. At the end of the 32 weeks, he did our 30 miler with us. It was interesting because all the way through our training, he showed up in the first sort of fortnight to three weeks, showed us the basics, and then every single time from then on, we would arrive as you do. I think it was sort of two or three times you needed to be on the drill square and you could see his red eyes and he'd walk towards you and you just knew the guy had a hangover. And he'd say, right fellas, uh, go back to your block and do some admin. <laughs> and of course, we were so exhausted, we were just praying he was gonna say this anyway. And, and that meant that you could actually go back and lie on your bed for maybe an hour, which was unheard of in training. I mean, you woke up at four, you. Most nights, I never got to bed before 1.30. Normally got out around 4, 
So to have that extra hour because our DL was was always drunk the night before was, was a real bonus. <laughs> so, yeah, you could say drinking was a, was a was quite a big pastime in the moment. Weekends in training where it's almost programmed into your routine to let you go downtown with your guys to, to sort of do all the bonding stuff. So we, we obviously did that. But it wasn't until I got to my unit that we... We'd go into Plymouth City Centre, sometimes every night, get really drunk. I mean, really. It's the first time I ever drank to... to, to, to not even drank to get drunk, because I'd done that before. It was where I drank to get obliterated, and then seeing the people that had, that had got up late in the morning, seeing the panic on their faces as they rushed to fall in, and people whispering, you know, your, your button's undone. But I drank for pleasure then, you know, despite drinking to, to annihilation, it still was for pleasure. There, there was never the, wow, I could really do with a drink aspect. I just never had that. Even, even drinking to that extent, I could still go in a pub set if I was driving and just have a pint and leave and, and not be thinking, um, oh, my God. I don't just want to have one pint, I want to have another, and then preferably I want to have another, and then I want to have at least another before I go home. And then when I get home, um, I'd like to have some in the fridge. Of course you never think you're going to be like that. And... I was for 20, 20 years. I said to my dad when, when, when I left to go to Limston and I looked him in the eye and I said, Dad, I'm going to pass out as a Royal Marine Commando. And when I do, you are going to get the first invitation to my passing out parade and you are going to see me as a Royal Marine. That was probably the, my biggest motivator above, above everything else. I'm not massively nostalgic, but one of the guys in our troop had got our um, passing out tape, VHS transferred to digital, and he'd sent us all the link to download a copy. And so I thought, ah, go on. And it's quite a spectacular day. It's spectacular for you as a, as a, as a Marine, let alone for, for parents who, who know nothing about you know, that life. You march onto that parade square. You've got the band playing Life on the Ocean Wave. You're dressed in what has to be the smartest military uniform in the world. You've got your rifles over your shoulder and, and, and you're perfectly in time and you do all these um, formation marches, which, which are actually quite easily done, but, but the, the audience isn't to know that. It's quite a show. And the troop officer said something like, Marine Thrall, cope well with all aspects of training, blah, 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 blah. He's gonna be a real asset to 4-2 Commando. And I was like, wow, that's great. Cause I wouldn't have said that. I would have said, 
Rinthal struggled like hell with every aspect of training and thought he was going to be binned in every single corner. I mean, I, I, I didn't have any major fear I wouldn't pass out, but you're generally made to feel that way, any, you know, regardless. That's the kind of default for everyone is you think you're going to fail. But, but I didn't especially think I was going to fail. Up until this point, my dad has not really shown any emotion. I think he was, he was quite blown away with it all. And uh, I went to get out of the car and I just turned to him and it was, we didn't really do, do hugs in our family. In fact, I actually instigated hugs after all my drug problems. Um, but yeah, he hadn't shown any any emotion to this point. And I'd sort of turn around to shake his hand and he was just crying. And he threw his arms around me and he and he hugged me. And he said, son, I'm, I'm just so proud of you. And before I knew it, I was stood watching the car drive away and I could still hear my dad crying as, as you know, as, as he pulled away. And, uh, Yeah, that's something I don't forget. Really strong. You can't well with all aspects. Despite a leg injury during the commando course, he still managed to pass all the tests. He joins Floor 2 Commando. Really strong. Yeah, Northern Ireland was uh, interesting, to say the least. Excited, yeah, but not that sense of excitement you get going to Disney World. You know, this is a job. You train for it. I had no fear. I've heard people say, you know, people go into war or active service or they say they're not scared, they're lying. It's, uh, but I never was. I mean, I really wasn't. According to history, well, that was one of the most violent years on record. It was the 20th anniversary of British troops being in the province. And intelligence had it that the IRA were going to do all they could to kill a Marine. So I wasn't in trepidation. I just wanted to go over and get started, really, and see how it went. Before I knew it, we were being loaded up into these armoured vehicles. I don't even think we had our weapons with us. We were driving along and I'm, I'm looking out. Wow, this is Belfast. This is what it looks like. And, and I'm staring through this slit and we drove past a pub. And all the guys were just chatting away as you would be if you were in a closed vehicle and you couldn't see anything. But there's me. I'm staring at the guys outside this pub. The second we went by, they just all dropped their drinks, dropped their smokes, and just started searching around for anything to throw at us as we were driving away. And I'm going, guys, guys, <laughs> they were still running down the road after us, just throwing chairs and bricks and stones and whatever. And that was the first time I thought, wow, this maybe is a bit serious. And we started off with M Company, a place called White Rock. The grime you see the second you get there tells you you're not in a Marines establishment. This is somewhere that a lot, a lot of soldiers have been through. Manky, pornography plastered on pretty much every surface. We've really got to be here for, for five months. 
coming home. Chris Thrall. Forces Radio. BFPS. I had a year on an aircraft carrier. I'd say the most enjoyable time, like as for fun, for fun's sake, it was the most enjoyable time. I was the ship's DJ. I remember DJing a, a couple of shows as we were sailing to Barbados. And I was a bit like um, Adrian Cronauer on Good Morning Vietnam. I just had all these like voices that I'd make up. We had Bangkok Lady and we had Dockyard Copper and and and, and, and you, could, you could hear the ship's company just laughing all around the mess, mess decks. It was fun, real fun. You know, things weren't politically correct at the best of times back in the you know, late 80s, early 90s. Put a Royal Marine on the ship's radio and, and it, it gets worse. I had the chaplain pull me to one side the next morning and a very good show last night, Marine Thrall. But um, you can't you can't take the mickey out of the captain like that. <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, so I had some uh, apologising to do on my, my next show, but it was brilliant. I got involved in a business and the business was network marketing. It was marketing electronic products. One of the products was a, a personal attack alarm. And I knew that on a barracks with 500 Marines, most of whom saw their partners infrequently, selling the concept of security by this don't mess with me screeching alarm would be quite easy. And within the first week, I'd, I'd sold thousands of pounds worth of these alarms. I'd been promoted three times up the promotion ladder of this company. I started to think, wow, there could be a career here. I was in count one day and I saw my friend Flash. He was a military policeman. And I said, Flash, listen, you've been saying you're going to come to one of my business presentations for ages. Are you going to come or not? And he said, Chris, look, I'd be honest with you. It's not for me. But I met a guy on my military police course that it will be right up his street. He's in the Hong Kong army. And I called him up. The next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call from one of the diamonds in the organization. That's the top position. That's what everybody aspires to. And it turned out that this guy Vance was high up in a company called Amway. And when he, I'd introduced him into this quorum business, this state-of-the-art electronic products, he just picked the ball up and ran immediately with it. And he transferred a load of his people over that were already high-flying network marketers. And the thing went mad. I got lucky, and you've always got to have luck no matter what business you're in. And this guy had come good for me. So I didn't really have a hard decision to make. I had to leave because if I didn't, how could I go out to Hong Kong and work where the biggest part of my business was? I think I started to see a side of the military. And that was this thing where... If you had an aspiration to do what we call going outside, to go into Civvy Street, you know, to do something different, immediately you, you often get the response, oh, you can't do that. I mean, there's nothing out there for you. You can't just live your whole life in one job just because you're af almost afraid to go and try something new. I mean, that's, that can't be right. As my time neared to leave the Royal Marines, which takes 18 months because you have to serve out that notice period, Certain individuals made it quite clear they weren't happy. And then we had a situation where a, a, a long-serving Marine, he became the subject of what, what I thought was a witch hunt. And they finally got him, so to speak, because his hair was half an inch too long. Well, that was the excuse. He served three months in prison. 
you've only got to do something that upsets the wrong person in the wrong place and then you can see other people in in, in their different ranks changing their behavior to conform to the senior did i belong in the royal marines i certainly had made a bed for myself elsewhere the only problem was is that by the time i'd served my 18 months notice out this business had started to crumble and as i was leaving the train to go up and get my indulgence flight out to hong kong i sat on the train and i knew it was all going to go wrong i just knew and i went to the window of the train and i pulled the window down and i i rolled a small spliff and i just smoked it out the window and i thought come on chris you're going out to hong kong you're smoking <laughs> drugs on the train is this is going to end in tears isn't it and then and obviously i knew the answer to my own question i landed in hong kong and i was going to do my blag which is to stay in hms tamar i still had my military id card because i'd explained to the clerk back at stonehouse like listen you know i know i'm out the core but i'm still technically in for 3 months and i'm going to be in hong kong and i'm intending to stay in the barracks there you know i didn't tell him that i had no permission whatsoever he wasn't interested anyway he went okay well keep hold of your card post it back to me sure i arrived in hong kong i arrived at the barracks I showed my card to the Gurkha on the gate. He came up and saluted me, which is just very endearing thing about the Gurkhas. They call everyone sir just to be safe. And I went in and I said, "Guys, are there any Marines around?" And one of them sorted me out with accommodation. That evening I went to a business presentation. The products we were trying to market had just turned gimmicky and rubbish, and they weren't sellable. So this director turned around and said to me, "Uh, problem is you you and your distributors they don't work hard enough and i just smiled at the guy it didn't even bother saying anything turn around walked out the office doors and i knew as i walked out i was never going to go back sir sir the, the adjutant is on the phone now for oh, no i said hello sir it is the adjutant So you are a mysterious marine. Yes, sir. What the hell are you doing stowing away on our camp? What what what's he going on about? You will report to me right away. Do you understand? I suggest, sir. I mean, of course I understood. Whether I was going to report to him right away was just a different matter as far as I'm concerned. I ran back there. I flash my id card i kept my head down i went up to the 17th floor i just grabbed my kit i bundled it all into my bergen chucked it over my shoulder head down down on the left and i walked out that gate knowing that that was it i'd severed my ties now with the military forever and i was a civilian and i was a civilian in one of the most dangerous cities in the world with this feeling that that something was going to go wrong unfortunately my business partner this guy Vance that that had built me this massive business in the Asia Pacific said 
you can come and live with me. You can come and stay with me and my wife. I looked in the paper trying to find a job. Uh, the first advert was bodyguard required. Must be um, fluent in Cantonese or something like this. And I thought, well, I can speak one or two. You know, I can say hello and goodbye in Cantonese. That that must qualify me as as fluent. So I, I immediately set about writing a, a, a CV because I, I obviously not needed one for seven years. And I'm trying to tailor my military skills to bodyguard skills so I'm trained in unarmed combat and fluent in with small arms and then I screwed it up and threw it in the bin it was likable celebrity was the advert bodyguard required for likable celebrity so I rolled up this paper because I didn't want the likable celebrity to think like I'm this ex-military guy with small arms <laughs> and uh, I fired off that I, I never heard a single thing but the next advert was was for a company called Gun Wang Hong. So I'm there. I had the two English guys in the office came over and they introduced themselves and they took me for training. And as things do in Asia, you just soon get around to, to chewing the fat and talking about how is it to be living in Hong Kong and whatever. And the guy said, you know, he said, Chris, you know, we don't actually sell anything here. Like, what? He said, no, he said, Mr. Mr. Fang, he just wants us in the office because we've got white faces. So when customers fly in from abroad, he said that we're selling DRAM memory chips for computers. And when customers fly in from abroad, um, in Mr. Fang's sort of old ancient Chinese wisdom, he, he feels it looks really good to have white faces in the office because it makes them look like an international company. I haven't sold a single thing in five or six months. I haven't sold a computer chip. I haven't sold a transistor. I haven't sold any of the masses of Chinese junk the company also traded in. It was impossible for someone who wasn't fluent in Cantonese, who didn't have a good grip on the market. I really was there just for my white face. And one afternoon, I went to take a pee. And as I got in the toilet, I smelt this strange smell. And my colleague came out of the cubicle. He was a guy called Neil Diamond. He'd come out of this toilet and he said, Chris, do you, you like to do a bit of drugs? I said, well, you know, I'll give anything a try. He said, well, come in here. He said, have you ever tried this ice? I said, no, but I've, I've heard about it, though. So he set this little crystal up on a piece of silver foil and he heated it with a lighter. And I'd never seen this kind of stuff going on before. And he put this rolled up banknote in my mouth and just said, suck, suck. So I breathed in these vapors didn't think much of it i mean i just took a tiny bit went back to my desk thought, oh, i won't do that again for a while and then i'm realizing i'm actually doing it three times a week and each time i'd buy the equivalent of an english 10 pounds worth and that'd be enough to keep you more than high all night long if not with some left over when i finally came clean about it with my business partner he'd said chris do you do you do the drug i said yeah that's i i I do. And he was like, no. And I was like, oh. And he just grabbed me and went, very bad. Very bad. In Hong Kong culture, taking the drug when you've made your fortune, it's okay. But before you've made your fortune, it's very bad. People think you are a loser. You have to remember it's an ancient culture. And that's very simplified way of how you might well look at drugs if you take them before you're successful. It could mess your life up. When I got back to work the next day, there was a letter on my desk and I almost knew what it was before I opened it. 
Dear Mr. Thrall, this company has no more need of your services. I took a job selling advertising space. Our job was to go into the high-flying businesses in Hong Kong and we tried to sell them advertising space. My two fellow salesmen that had been there a while said, Chris, do you know what really goes on? And I, of course I didn't. They said, that magazine there, you see there's 12 copies of it, you know, our business advertiser on the shelf. He said, that's, that's it. Well, I said, what do you mean? We're supposed to be going into these companies telling them that this magazine goes to every single shop, goes to every hotel, every library. It's posted out to everybody in the magazine. What, what are you saying? He said, so I'll go in, I'll do the spiel. I'll say, hi, John, lovely office you got here. So uh, about this advertising thing, thingamajig, just, uh, if you can just put your scroll here. But I literally put the pen in their hand and kind of guide them to sign, and that's it, I'm out of there. So you go into someone's office, you sell them advertising space in a magazine that technically doesn't exist. So I did that. My first hit was British Telecom Hong Kong. And I went in, it all went perfectly to plan. Spoke to the managing director, did the, hi, nice office you've got here. If you just sign here, and if I can just get out of here, yes, I did it. It was that easy. So cockily going out the office for the afternoon, I said, um, guys, I'm going for a walk. And maybe sometime see if you can get a good price for my skis and and we all laughed and i didn't know that it was literally i was going to be sometime because i went to a smaller company it was a very nice english chap he just took one look at the ad and said chris we never place that advert with you he said if you just wait there i'll go and get our invoices and he disappeared up a flight of stairs i just ran for the lift and i got lost as quick as i could in hong kong's masses and i felt ashamed I felt ashamed that I tried to cheat this hard-working, this hard-working man. I wandered into Wan Chai and I wanted to go and see my friend who worked as a doorman on a Chinese-run club. So I wandered down into this club and my friend wasn't there. I went up, introduced myself and he said, oh no, Glenn, Glenn's gone. Glenn's gone to Thailand. He said, uh, can you do doorman job? I said, yeah, yeah, I can do doorman job. He said, do, do, do you want to start here? I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to start here. Just typical, the first night on a new job. I didn't really know anyone, you know, obviously didn't know anyone. The manager, Peter, came up to me and said, I'll introduce you to your two workmates. A six foot six guy, his name was Daisu. He introduced me to this short, chubbier chap Chuchi. And I thought, okay, look forward to getting on with you guys like, like you do in the workplace. And later that night, I was walking past the bar and an English expat went, Chris. I said, yeah, that's right. I'm surprised you knew my name. He said, uh, so, you know they're all triads. Really? He said, yeah. He said, your man uh, Daisu there, the, the tall guy you were talking to earlier, he's uh, an assassin. Every now and again, he gets smuggled over the border into China to do a hit on someone and, and smuggle back again. Well, I was just <laughs> in shock. I was, fa I was fascinated. You know, I was fascinated. And he said, Chu Chai, your man there, he said he's a street fighter. He's, um, he's what they call a, a little horse, a magi in, in Chinese. He's like a runner, but he's a street fighter and he'll pick up anything in a scrap and thinks he can smash an enemy over the head with it. 
and he went one by one around the bar explaining all the, the positions that these triads have. And of course, I found it fascinating. Coming home, Chris Thrall. It all went well, I was fascinated. I, I started to try and speak Cantonese with these guys and they were just, they weren't having any of it. I'm sat on a stool by the door, which is where I found myself perching. And there were two prostitutes, two Thai prostitutes, had been sent over from another club to entertain the triad manager. So they were sat down, having drinks, laughing. These two Thai girls were kind of showing off, you know, in, in their element because they were all with very important men. And then I looked over again and, and one of the girls just crashed on the floor. And then the other girl jumped, jumped astride of her. And I thought, ah, oh, it's horseplay. You know, they're just mucking around, showing off in front of their, in front of their dates. And then I looked again, and the face of the girl on the floor had started to go blue. And I realised, ah, drug overdose. So being a former Marine, what do you do? You ABC, right, instinctively. Do you know, I couldn't tell if she's breathing at all, so I put, put my tongue next to her mouth, and I could just feel a light breath on my tongue, and I took her pulse, something like 160. And I thought, ice overdose, crystal, crystal meth. I grabbed her bag and I started looking through it to see what drugs were in there, figuring when the ambulance comes, I want to be able to tell them. And her friend just screamed and ripped the bag back. And I remembered back to what Vance had said about drugs being taboo in Hong Kong. And I thought, wow, this girl would rather her friend died than I tried to help, help her live. Next thing I knew, there were two sets of feet there. It was the triad boss and the club owner had walked over. The trial boss just looked down at me and said, throw her in the alleyway. I thought, did I just hear that? He just told me to throw her like in the alleyway where, where the dumpsters were out back. And of course I wasn't gonna do that. So I just ignored him. It, it, it was just the only thing I could do. And I looked up and I looked around the bar expecting that people were going to rush over and help me and, and everyone had just put their drinks down and they were all staring. It seemed like they were all staring at daggers at me. And there was one expat in the club. He said almost laughingly, are you all right, bud? Can I help you? And I said, yeah, go to a 7-Eleven and call an ambulance. And he went, yeah, as if, yeah, like, right, Someone hasn't done that already. And I said, just, I said, look around you. The next day, one of the triads came over and said, do you want to come to breakfast with us? And I thought, wow, this is really, you know, the other day I was homeless living on my, living out in my backpack. Now I'm going to breakfast with a 14K, Hong Kong's most ruthless triad brotherhood. So of course I said yes, but I noticed not a single person spoke to me. I walked over to the Dilo, that means big brother, that's the triad boss, and I said, the girl last night? And he just nodded and looked straight ahead. I said, did I do the wrong thing? He just nodded and I knew that's all that was needed to be said. The next day I arrived at work, there's a Westerner stood there wearing a, a Club Nemo sweatshirt. He said, you're Chris. I said, yeah. He said, I'm Drick, short for Hendrick. 
and he spoke with a South African accent. And I was, I was like, well, what are you doing here? He said, oh, Peter, the boss just asked me to come over from the Pussycat Club for, for a few nights, you know, to help out. And I said, to help out? I said, this is about that girl last night, isn't it? And he kind of took a furtive look around him and went, yeah, yeah, it is. I said, did I really do the wrong thing? He said, yeah, you did. I said, well, what was I supposed to do? The girl was dying on the floor. I, I couldn't just let her die. He said, what you do in that case is you just pick her up, throw her over your shoulder and run out and put her in a cab. That scenario hadn't even occurred to me. And I was like, so is, is that the only reason you're here? I mean, just because I didn't put a girl in a cab? And he said, no. I said, go on. He said, they think you're a cop. And I thought, have I really screwed this up? This suddenly had all taken a very serious turn. And I'd gone from being a happy-go-lucky, albeit <laughs> very drug-addicted doorman, to suddenly feeling as though I was about to suffer the wrath of the triads and I wouldn't be the first guy. My friend, the fellow doorman in Wan Chai, he had scars all over his face where he'd been working on his club door one night. A, a transit van had pulled up. Seven triads got out with meat cleavers and they just began hacking him to bits. His thumb was so severed it was just hanging down on a string by his wrist where he'd put his hands up to protect himself. And his face was um, crisscrossed. It looked, it looked like he'd been rammed into a tennis net at 100 mile an hour or something. And that turned out to be a case of mistaken identity. The next thing I knew, doormen from the other clubs are starting to come down our stairs. And they would stop next to me, look at me, give me the look of evil, then go into the club. Earlier in that week, I'd noticed when some of the expats came into the club, they would see this South African doorman that, that I mentioned, and they didn't think I noticed, but I did. When they came in, they'd cough, <coughs> and he'd give a slight <coughs> cough back. And it was so clever and so sly, you, if you weren't looking for it, you, wouldn't, you just wouldn't know. But it reminded me of when we were doing arms drill, like in our pass out parade in the Marines. And a lot of that drill was done without anyone giving commands, or at least it looked that way to the audience. What they didn't know is hidden in the center of the squad, we had a hissing Sid. And that was someone whose job it was to go. And of course we would move on that command. So for anyone watching, it looked, it looked like we were performing magic. And this thing with the coughing really reminded me of that. So I became ever more confused, obviously. I think for the first time in my life, I started to get really scared. You know, who did I think I was? I started to do some thinking. And I thought, hang on a sec. I'm a fallen Royal Marines commando. What do they, these guys know about that? They think they're going to intimidate me? What are they expecting me to do? I thought, no, I'll stay and I'll fight. And I thought, no, I'm not having it. I reckon they're playing with me. I reckon they're playing with me. And I still don't know to this day what it was truly about. 
I finally got back to my apartment block in Wan Chai. I went upstairs. In the midst of trying to figure all, all this out, I remembered a letter that I had, and I had it in my briefcase. And it was from my second cousin, Paul, who joined the Marines as a, as a boy soldier and, and finally retired as a colonel. And I remembered something in it that was pertinent. So I rough, rifled through my briefcase and I found this letter. And it said something along, along the lines of, Dear Chris, blah, blah, blah. When you're walking across Dartmoor and it's 3 a.m. pouring with rain, you might question what the hell you're doing. But I promise you, it will all be worth it in the end. And in my drug psychosis, my inner voice was telling me that the reason my cousin Paul had written those letters all these years ago was preparing me for this moment when I had to go up to the roof of the building and I was on the top floor anyway. So, um, and I had to crawl across this wire that stretched between my building and the building on the other side of the Jaffe Road. So I got it in my head that, my God, we learnt the commando crawl in training. That's where you crawl across a rope so that I could crawl across this flimsy wire. This whole thing would be over and I'd find out what, what my whole life was about, what this whole bizarre Hong Kong spirit experience was about and it would all be done, dusted, finito. So up I went to the rooftop, I laid my body on this, this cable and I started chinning across. And I got a few feet out and I, I just stopped and I'm looking down at the people and they're like ants, I was so high up. And it was pitch black other than the obvious street, street lights below. And I'm swaying there and I just, I just suddenly thought, what if I fall? What if my brother back home has to hear that his brother became a drug addict in Hong Kong and he threw himself off this building? Because that's what they would report, right? They wouldn't know what I was up to. And I thought, how would it be if he hit, you know, he hears that his brother threw himself off a, off, off a building? It just hit me and tears started pouring down my face and I went back to my room and I was in I got angry then you know I was in such rage what the, the hell had I been thinking what what was I doing I mean those drugs they they were so good in the beginning they'd really worked for me they'd made me feel the person that I wanted to feel they'd probably filled a big gap in my life and yet how had I turned out what had I got now I, I had nothing so far away from what I would have been as, as a marine just just a year ago Finally, I just sank down in a crying mess on the floor and I couldn't stop crying. The reality for the first time in a year of what I'd actually done to myself came home. I left the UK to make my fortune, not just the money, of course, but metaphorically, you know, to find myself. And, and, and I was going back a completely broken wreck. I landed at London Heathrow, and I saw my dad stood there looking at the passengers coming off the flight. So I walked up to him and I said, hi, dad. And he was kind of still looking as though, you know, who's this guy in my way? And he sort of stepped around me and kept looking. And I said, dad. And he looked. And then he turned back again and kept looking at the passengers coming off the flight. I said, dad, it's me. And then he looked. And 
the shock on his face, you know, remember it to this day. I could see in his eyes he didn't recognise me. He just didn't recognise the person looking at him. So basically, you know, I was still very high. I still had drugs on me. They ran out after a few days. In those few days, the police were called three times. The only danger I was was to myself. I wasn't going to hurt anybody. But my parents were so frightened by my behaviour, they just couldn't understand it. So they kept calling the police. In reality, you have to get so fed up of taking drugs. And as you can probably tell from my story, I had gone lower than you're supposed to go. And you make a decision to change. And that day comes and you, you quit the drugs. And it's not long before your addictive mindset starts saying, well, you know, you've done really well. You've given up for a few days or it might be a few weeks, might even be a month. You know, you can kind of treat yourself to some drugs now. <laughs> Things were pretty fraught. I mean, I was a guy that just got kicked out of working for the Hong Kong triads because I was too crazy. And I mean, I was literally crazy. I don't mean my behavior was wild, although it was. I mean, I was just so mentally unwell. They couldn't deal with it anymore. They His autobiography, Eating Smoke. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.